Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Grab a seat. Welcome to those who are joining online. I'm Gare, and it's a wonderful delight to welcome you and to have our church community together online and in person. A great warm welcome to you. Let's bow our heads. We're going to dig into God's Word together, and let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your Word, and we pray now as we come to it, you would teach us, feed us, guide us, and move our hearts in greater affection for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, we are in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's on the screen. We're going to begin with verse 15. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came from the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. We are finishing in our series on the book of Acts. We're going to spend three weeks on this chapter, Acts chapter 20, looking at Paul's speech, his encouragement, almost his sermon to the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. Paul is hoping to get to Jerusalem, and from there we read elsewhere, he's hoping to get to Rome. But in the meantime, he wants to say goodbye. He wants to give one final encouragement to the church in Ephesus. He says, I'm not going to see you again. We don't have FaceTime. This is it. And so his final words to the church that he planted and spent many years with, he wants to encourage. And throughout church history, people have seen this encouragement as a significant piece of Paul's writings. In fact, it's the only speech, it's the only sermon he gives in the book of Acts, which is specifically to Christians. Everything else is to non-Christians. And in it, we see Paul's vision not only for how to do pastoral ministry, how to be a pastor. And if you want to choose a good pastor, read this first and then go pick a church. But in it, we also see what it means to shape your life fully, to devote your life exclusively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it means to follow Jesus with your whole life. In other words, he's encouraging and provoking and exhorting the Ephesian elders not to waste their life, but to give it wholeheartedly to the purposes of God. 
over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at the three foundational encouragement he gives to them and to us on how not to waste our life, but how to see it fulfilled in the purposes of God. This week, we're going to look at the first encouragement he gives in verse 24, which is this, to simply run the race that God has designed for you. Run the race that God has designed for you. In verse 24, we read Paul say, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul was made for a purpose. God had designed uniquely for him and for you a race that only you can run, tasks that he has designed for you to outwork. You are not an accident. You are made for a reason. You are the way you are for a reason. Because, because God has a unique job for a unique you. Unique purposes that only you can fulfill. We hear this a lot in Christian circles. And people often say to me, but Gare, how do I know what this is? How do I know what my race is? I've been asking God, show me what you have for me. Well, in this passage, we see the four hallmarks of the unique race that God has for you. Number one is this, your race is utterly unique to you, so don't waste your life trying to be someone else. Your your race is unique to you. In verse 24, literally in the Greek, it says this, this is the word order in the Greek, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul is emphasizing, I have something specific to do, not you. Not you, but I'm responsible for what the Lord has asked me to do. God gave Paul a specific task, and so he has to you. For him, it was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. To shake hands with Peter as he was going to preach to the Jews. He says, you know what, you take the Jews, I'll take the Gentiles. And he traveled around Europe planting churches in places that had never heard of Jesus Christ. That was Paul. What about you? What has God shaped you uniquely to do? In Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes this, for we are God's handiwork or masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You have a unique task, a unique purpose. The problem is, of course, that so often we're besotted and obsessed with trying to run someone else's race. We're not quite satisfied with who we are, and so we want more to be like other people. I wish I was more this, less that. Because I wish that actually I love what he is doing, I love what she's doing, I wish that was me. And all the time, The race that God has marked out for us is straight ahead. The runway lights of the Spirit are calling us. This is it. And all the time we're slightly looking. I wish I was over there. 
We want to be slightly different, slightly more successful, slightly less chubby, slightly more good-looking, slightly more successful, slightly more gifted. I've lived my life like so many of you, sometimes wishing, oh, I wish I was who other people would value me to be. Many have lived under the curse of parents who wanted you to be something that was born out of their own brokenness rather than out of your uniqueness. It could be church, it could be culture, it could be schooling, it could be something else that people have always said, this is valuable. If you're going to be someone, you need to do this. And all the time, we're missing the uniqueness of who God has called us to be and called us to do. Another mistake that people often make is to think, well, if God's called me to do something special, it must be in ministry. That we have this secular, sacred divide. That people say to me, oh, I love Jesus. You know what? I think maybe then I should just give up my job and go off and be a missionary or become a pastor. That's when I'm really serving Jesus. And we forget the uniqueness of who we are because there is no sacred, secular divide. The whole earth is created by Jesus. The whole earth is to be full of the glory of God. There is no more special anointing on being a kingdom-centered pastor versus a kingdom-centered dentist. Both can be done to the glory of Jesus. This came home to me when I was watching one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm sure you've watched it and seen it and loved it. Who, who's seen Chariots of Fire? Brilliant. The rest of you, get a life. <laughs> the story is about a Scotsman, among other Olympians, who were preparing for the Olympic Games back in the 30s. And this focus on one particular part of the story was Eric Little, who was raised in a Christian home and raised to be a missionary. Parents had been missionaries, and that was his destiny. And at the same time, he was torn because... He loved the kingdom of God, but he also loved to run. He wanted to be an athlete. He wanted to run in the Olympics. And there's a famous part of the movie where he's going for a walk with his wife, Jenny, on the moors around Edinburgh. And she's disappointed because she's worried that he's not going to be a missionary. He's going to choose to run. And he says these infamous words. He says, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What is it that when you run, you feel his pleasure? Do you know how God has made you? Do you need to rebuke the lie that you're not enough? That you need to be more like this or less like that? Have you embraced the unique cocktail that God has designed for you of your personality, your passions, your gifts, your circumstances, your experiences, even the traumas and the tragedies you've been through? They're all in the hands of a redemptive God, creating a unique you for a unique purpose that only you can fulfill. You have a unique race to run. Don't waste your life 
trying to run someone else's. If you're looking at, Gary, I need more help to explore, then I kind of recommend a book by our friend John Mark Comer called Garden City. Secondly, your race is not only unique for you, but importantly, your race is not about you. Your race is not about you. In verse 24, he says, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That the center of the life that God has carved out for us is not to make much of us, but to make much of Jesus Christ and his grace in our lives. Paul's race and ours has one beautiful obsession to showcase, to highlight, to enjoy, to celebrate, to share, to make much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lie, isn't there, that we hear day in, day out, that to make the most out of life, you need to put yourself in the center of your life. That when you make your life about the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, that's when things will start to get better. Joy comes, we hear, when you be you and don't let anybody distract you from just making yourself the center. Jesus steps into this lie and the emptiness of this lie when he tells us that we are created not to find our life in us, but when we lose our life for him, we then find it. John Stott said, Christ is the center of Christianity and everything else is circumference. Dr. Jeff Myers wrote, he said, understanding Jesus as the center of all reality is liberating. It rescues us from the meanness of me and Jesus and positions us to see the world from God's perspective and bring his good news to everyone, everywhere, all the time. I've been on this earth for 48 years now, been stumbling along in my relationship with Jesus for most of them, and I've put to test this principle that Jesus says that if you put him first, you'll find your life. Because it's paradoxical. And as I look back over my years, I can say I have had the greatest joy when I'm not the center of my affection. I have the greatest joy when he is my affection. Someone once put it like this to me. He said, Gare, you do realize in the kingdom of God, you're not the groom. You're the best man. Have you ever been maitre of honor or best man or would like to be? I've had the privilege of being it twice. Best man, that is. And both times, my joy has exploded as I make much of the groom. As I prepare the day, take care of him on his bachelor weekend, that we don't leave him behind. <laughs> or at least he knows how to get home. But on the day, we pray with him, make sure he's looking great. 
deflect attention to him. And such joy filled my heart when I was able to be the best man to my brother and then my best friend to Andrew. Do you realize that in the economy of God, we've been created not to be the center of attention, but to find our greatest joy by making much of the groom? And actually, the bride, which is the church of Jesus Christ, not you. I was so struck by a prayer of a great father of the faith. I never knew him, but I've read most of his books, and he died a few years ago. His name was John Stott, and in his biography, the biographer wrote every time John would wake up in the morning, he'd roll out of bed, crawl on his knees over his bed, and say this same prayer. And I wonder if our lives would change if we said this prayer every day. In that individualistic, narcissistic culture of the city I love, I wonder what would happen if we prayed John's prayer. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. It's as if John heard Jesus when Jesus said, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but so often I come and say, Lord Jesus, here's my agenda. Can you get behind it? Here's what I want. Will you do it? No, I've got no problem in asking things in accordance with his will. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. But the motivation behind all of it is my life is not at the center of my agenda, but it's his glory, it's his grace, and I will find my life as I pursue him. Again, it's a paradox, it's about trust, because remember, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, stop worrying about all these things you're worrying about, your life, your clothing, your money, your future, stop worrying. Don't you know? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will come your way. You'll find your life, you'll find your joy when you pour out for him. Number three, your race is not dependent on your circumstances. Your race is not dependent on your circumstances. See, when you read the whole book of Acts, you see Paul had a very clear calling, which he summarized, I am to preach the, the gospel to the Gentiles. But you see that that journey had been pretty tumultuous. It had been up and down. 
There'd been favorable circumstances where he goes into a city, the crowds gather around, he preaches to the Gentiles, and they come to know Jesus. But then been some pretty, pretty low points as well. He goes into a city, the crowd gathers around, he preaches the name Jesus, and they stone him. And they torture him, and they drive him out of town. Paul, in all of his obedience to the will of God, never looked at his circumstances as permission to outwork his purpose. He never waited for the favorable wind to come and blow that he could actually have a platform to speak the good news of Jesus. As you see in the the Gospel of Acts, the, the book of Acts and throughout Paul's letters, Paul knew what his purpose was and never waited for the right circumstances, but whatever the circumstances, brought his purpose into them. I'm saying this because there is a trend in the church and in some teaching, actually, to say to you, God's got a great vision for you, to prophesy great things over your life, to say that one day God's going to do this with you. One day it's going to open up and you will find you'll enter into your destiny. And we can actually misread some of the Old Testament. We can take character studies of the Old Testament and look at the life of David, look at the life of Moses, look at the life of Esther, look at the life of Joseph, and we can kind of spiritualize and principalize that actually there's a long season of waiting before God actually uses you. And you have all these lovely words going, one day, don't worry, one day God's timing is perfect. And meanwhile, we're going, okay, I guess I'll just wait. I guess I'll just wait. Because we have this view that our purpose is tied up in a successful, public, profitable, fruitful ministry of some sort. Paul, I think, in his writings and here, is demonstrating to us that your purpose of God, your race is to be run today and don't wait till tomorrow. Whatever the circumstances, God has a purpose for you. Whatever your situation, your purpose starts now. Your purpose starts now. Yes, it will change. It will unfold. God will take you through different seasons and he'll enlarge and sometimes he'll shrink. But don't wait for some nirvana overlapping moment of your passion, your gifting, your circumstances, your finances, all gelling. Now this is it. In fact, Paul says, My, I want to get to Spain. We have no actual record of him ever making it to Spain. Part of his purpose is remain unfulfilled. Your purposes are not wrapped up in one day the perfect situation will arise. Your perfect situation will never arise. You just get on with the purposes today. Get in the water and start swimming. I remember a story that really shaped my view of this in my own life. When I had 
had great plans to be a trial lawyer. I was in law school, and I had great plans to maybe even preach and teach in church and speak, and I was looking forward to using that gift. And I had people pray and prophesy over me and these things, and all of a sudden, I went to law school. I was 18 years old, and many of you had heard the story, but this is so pivotal to me in this truth, I'll say it again, that I went to law school, and within two months of law school, I, out of nowhere, developed a debilitating stutter, stammer, speech impediment. It was crushing. I couldn't even say my name. I'd go into the law school, I'd go into tutorials, want to talk about the case law, want to talk about the problem, want to talk about tactics, and I couldn't even get out a word. I saw my future crumble before me. I didn't know what was going to happen next. I felt embarrassment. I felt useless. I felt now I'm going to be an also-ran, and God's going to move on to someone else. And I was hanging on for healing. When I'm healed, then the purpose of God will kick back in again. I went in devastation, took a weekend off, went back to see my parents, walked in the door. They saw I was distraught, said, what's going on? Sat down. And in weeping, I I told them how I was feeling devastated. And I said, I want God to heal me because nothing can happen without this. And my father comforted me and just said, Gare, I know this is terrible for you, and we will pray for healing, but God's in this, and not just in the healing. I I, I can't do anything. He said, but Gare, you've developed a stutter. You've developed a speech impediment. What an opportunity. I go, what? He said, but think about it. God's going to open up an opportunity. As you go to speech therapy now, as you go and mix with other stutterers, you're going to have an opportunity to break into a community that you've never been in before and tell them about Jesus. To come alongside people who are suffering and struggling. They don't have the hope you have. I go, shut up, Dad. That's not the encouragement I want. I want to be healed. Because I know what I want my life to look like. And that's what it means to be a success in God's will. Not this. But I knew the gospel was being fed into my heart. And I went back to Bristol where I was at law school, joined a stammering club, (laughs) went to speech therapy, met some amazing people, and guess what? I found myself being used by the Lord to bring hope to the hopeless. I still had my stammer. just took a lot longer to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> That's okay. See, many of us think it's when we're healed, it's when we're married, it's when we get that job, it's when we finally become a success, it's when I get that role, it's when I have kids. That's when I kick into the purposes of God. Did you know the primary place of your purposes of God is your suffering? is your pain. So look around you and start running your race. If you're unemployed, what an opportunity to go to other unemployed people and go, how are you coping with unemployed? Because without Jesus, I don't think I could cope. In your singleness, in your barrenness, in your sickness, run your race today and don't wait for tomorrow. And then finally, as the worship band come up as we take communion together.
Your race is in response and fueled by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul didn't look at this life objectively and go, you know what, huh, there's a rabbi over there and there's this guy called Jesus. I think I'll follow him. He was drawn by grace, compelled by grace. He says in verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me except to complete the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. This whole thing is fueled by revelation and experience of God's grace in your life. And we're going to come to communion now and recenter our lives around, you know what? Because He's paid it all for me, I'm going to lose it all for Him. Because He paid the ultimate price for me, there's nothing that I won't do for Him. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's stand together.